thanks for coming for the last couple sessions here. We're going to round out your pain week. I hope everybody's doing well. I am Tanya Yaritsky, and I'm going to start off the first half of this presentation, uh, and then I'm going to kick it over to Maria, and she's going to round it out for us. So we're here to talk about exactly what our title says. Um, neither, well, I have nothing to disclose. Maria is a speaker on the Bureau for AstraZeneca. So what we hope to achieve today is to um, talk about the sensitized pain state and to be able to explain development of that in chronic pain, to identify how to develop strategies to de-escalate opioids, um, also to summarize what available treatment options there are pharmacologically to use during the de-escalation process, and finally, to spend some time describing an educational program that um, can help, to explain, uh, help chronic pain patients to better understand their situation and explain chronic pain to them. So just to kind of get us started, um, see where we're at for starters, symptoms of central sensitization may include, and lucky you, you get to pick more than one answer. Can everybody hear me still? Okay. Um, so if you think that symptoms of central sensitization include allodynia, just feel free to raise your hand. Okay, fair number of people. Hyperalgesia, I think the same amount of people. Swelling few less people. Bradycardia. Couple of people. Okay, so we're going to see now through the next few slides exactly what the answer is. So I'm going to start off with peripheral sensitization because that is kind of how it all starts out. So you have your injury in the periphery um, and this results in an inflammatory soup, right? So the list of things here is not as important as understanding that this represents uh, inflammation, this list of guys right here. Um, and so this inflammation lowers the threshold for activation, right? It's supposed to be protective so that you, you kind of block that injury from getting re-injured. Um, what happens is the neurons then have an increased rate of firing, and this does result in allodynia, hyperalgesia, and central sensitization. So for those of you who said allodynia, give yourself a pat on the back. And for those of you who said hyperalgesia, you can also give yourself a pat on the back because peripheral sensitization often leads to central sensitization. So central sensitization is that increased amplification of signaling of the neurons that elicits that pain hypersensitivity. Um, what it looks like, as we commonly see, is that uncoupling of that stimulus-response relationship. So the uh, stimulus that shouldn't be painful becomes very, very painful, which is not usually what we would think about in normal stimulus-response relationships. That's that hyperalgesia effect, also that allodynia effect. Um, does everybody know what hyperalgesia and allodynia are? I should probably at least clarify that in case we don't. Um, so hyperalgesia is when you have a painful stimulus that would be like lightfully painful, that the response is dramatically painful. So I stub my toe and I'm crying for two hours, kind of like my five-year-old, versus um, allodynia where I, something that's very, that shouldn't be painful, like a light touch or a graze of the hand, uh, is gives um, somebody a painful response. So those two things can be similar but different. And then um, you also see a prolonged pain after a transient stimulus, and it can persist for a long time after healing of the injury. So if you kind of dig in a little bit deeper, um, which is where the, the, on a more granular level, when we look at the spinal cord, we have the pain afferent neurons. And those nerves are, use things like glutamate, substance P, and calcium to send their, their messages along. With, um, when it gets to the central part of the spinal cord, NMDA receptor gets involved, our endogenous opioid load goes down, serotonin um, changes, norepinephrine changes, and dopamine changes. 
also um, we have the microglial cells that get involved. And those are normally microglial cells involved in inflammation in the immune system. And they use glutamate too. They also use cytokines and they also use some uh, potassium and calcium. And this dysregulation together with the central nervous system um, dysregulation is actually what causes windup, what sends that pain signal up into the brain. So it's actually what we want, right? Because we need the pain signal to get to the brain. What happens, though, is as this stays on in a protracted way, and someone who's experiencing this on a regular daily basis over a long period of time, these nerves change, and they start to get used to this situation. And so this situation becomes normal for the nerves, and that's obviously not a normal state, this wind-up situation. And that's why people become so sensitized, because they are on, and they are on all the time. And anyone who's been on all the time knows how exhausting that is, knows how hard it is to get over that, and knows even as you start to resolve that, you can easily feel like you could fall back into being on all the time. So that's how the nervous system changes. And what you see is you see this, and this is what glial cell activation looks like. If you don't remember what glial cells are, I don't, that's okay. This is the more cellular level, but what you see are the, the words on this slide. So things like neuroinflammation, things like not sleeping, things like being tired all the time, being depressed, um, that centralized pain state, all of these chronic pain type of symptoms um, that we may see, the overstimulation of the sympathetic nervous system. So if you said bradycardia on that first question, you probably weren't right, because usually you might see a little bit more tachycardia um, as one of the symptoms. But hey, you never know. <laughs> and then um, you may also see some cognitive changes along with all of this. So this arrow here kind of depicts how it all goes along, just in a, like a more of a summary state for you. So initially, you have your injury at the beginning. You kind of plot along. Um, you have your chemical changes, your wind-up. Then your microglial cells get activated. You get your inflammation, which you don't need, <laughs> but you have. Glutamate neurotoxins begin to release, and cells begin to die. And then they reform, right, because that's what nerve cells redo. And then you have your imprinting of your pain sensitization. And so this change results in that final outcome. And that's how you get that central sensitized state. So what you see is constant pain. People who are tired may not be eating, may feel hopeless. Um, they may be re more reclusive or not likely to come out of their homes as much. They may have a sympathetic nervous system response. They may have hypertension. They may have tachycardia. They may, they're feeling terrible. And not that different from someone who's misusing opioids, right? Or, so it's kind of sometimes hard to, <laughs> to figure out if someone is on an opioid and has central sensitization, are they misusing opioids? Do they have this constant pain state? This can be really, really tricky. But this is what you may see. And why? Now you're going to leave here and you're like, I am terrified. I can never get injured because I'm going to end up in this horrible pain state, right? We all know that that's not true. That doesn't happen to everybody. That does not happen with every injury. So why? Um, things like stress, things like lack of sleep, um, poor coping, individual beliefs and expectations, all of these things may result in a lower pain threshold. My pain threshold is not your pain threshold, right? My pain threshold is nowhere near my husband's pain threshold. I am far stronger. <laughs> so <laughs> um, it's just individual characteristics that we know can lead to people having different levels of pain thresholds. And then the predictors of chronic pain are things more like people who have baseline anxiety disorders, people who have mental health issues, emotional trauma, abuse, um, 
different types of mental health problems and depression. So these types of things may predispose someone to developing this chronic pain state. And with these things, I think sometimes it's hard because we don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Like that's the tricky part is were you depressed first and you got the chronic pain or did you have the chronic pain and you got depressed? And so that can be kind of tricky to figure out too. So ultimately, at the end of the day, the common denominator is central sensitization, right? So this slide is all the, a lot of the different syndromes we see that at the core of them is central sensitization, fibromyalgia, um, all these different types of abdominal things, or interstitial cystitis, um, restless legs. There's lots of things that at the core of them, they're chronic, and there's probably a lot of central changes that we need to address. So how do we do that? So there's lots of different ways we can do that. Uh, the medication classes are listed for you um, here. Sorry, over here on the side of the room. Um, and then there, um, right on the next column, is things that are not necessarily pharmacologic. So I'm going to talk through the different classes, the NMDA receptor antagonists, et cetera, um, each going to have a dedicated section. And then Maria is probably going to talk a little bit more about the other stuff in the education, but things like cognitive behavioral therapy, um, exercise, we know all of these things. Massage are complementary and can help all of our medicines and all of our other modalities work better. So um, what we want our non-opioid therapies to be are selected based on the patient and what their attributes are, as well as on the agent and what the attributes of the agent are. So we want to first get the right diagnosis, the right pain assessment, figure out what kind of pain type we're dealing with, if we, if we can, and then figure out how to, what agent would best fit that. So if someone has nociceptive pain, more of an arthritic pain or, or something like that, somatic pain, acetaminophen, NSAIDs, right? Those may go the right way, the non-steroidals. Uh, neuropathic pain may be benef benefit more from anticonvulsants or from antidepressants. And so um, that can, if we direct our agent towards the type of pain that we're on the right track, uh, first things first. We want to think about patient-specific risk for adverse events. So what types of qualities of the patient are we concerned about if they're on an NSAID? If they have an ulcer, should they get an NSAID? Probably not. So what is their risk of using the certain agents, just like for the opioids, right? What is their risk if I'm going to prescribe one? I need to know where uh, baseline I am from risk. Um, also, other concomitant um, disease states they may have. So if someone has uh, trouble sleeping and they also are depressed, is there an antidepressant or something I can give them at night that will help them sleep, but also will give them um, benefit to their mood? So it's great if I can hit more than one tr symptom with a single drug. I always prefer that. And then starting one agent at a time. So nothing gets me more as a pharmacist than when someone comes in and starts three drugs at one time. Um, it, we all are well-intended, but I don't know then what went well and what didn't go well. And so then my patient tells me, guess what? They started blah and blah and blah, and I ain't taking any of those blahs because <laughs> I feel really bad and I don't know which one did it. And so now I have three drugs that that someone is never going to take again. And so if I keep one drug and I increase that dose and then add another one on, I have a sense of what did what to that person, especially when some of these drugs have overlapping adverse effects and we can't tell which one might be responsible. Um, and then if you do try, let's say, gabapentin, and you get to a therapeutic dose, and then you say, eh, it's not really working, um, how many people think it would be reasonable to try pregabalin instead? Instead. How about in addition? Some people will do in addition. I read something recently that say that might be helpful, but I think that's not necessarily, like, 
true. I don't know. We don't have enough data on that. Um, but anyways, I, it's totally reasonable to go within the same class of medication to a different drug, just like with the opioids, where if oxycodone's not working, morphine might be a better choice. Um, it's the same idea. So if one agent within that class failed, it doesn't mean the whole class is, is out or, you know, you can try the other one. Um, Okay, so I'm going to now run through the different classes. So our NMDA receptor antagonists, these are, NMDA stands for N-methyl-D-aspartate um, receptor, big mouthful, NMDA is much better. And um, NMDA receptor is that receptor that in the initial slide of the neuron that's in that central part of the, um, the spinal cord, and it's associated with hyperalgesia, it's associated with that wind-up chronic uh, central sensitization state with neuropathic pain and with reduced functionality of the opioid receptors. The antagonists uh, may pay, play a role in improving the central sensitization and in improving chronic pain because of their role in, in the pain state itself. Um, limiting factors for its use are things like their side effects, so we'll talk about that in a minute. And then um, these types of drugs generally require provider expertise and training because I'm talking about here ketamine and methadone. And typically, um, because of their, one is considered an anesthetic, and because of methadone's um, pharmacokinetics and other things, they should be left really to specialists, but they can be really helpful in this situation. So ketamine, like I mentioned, is an anesthetic agent. We use sub-anesthetic doses for pain management off-label. Who uses uh, sub-anesthetic ketamine? Anybody? A few hands. Yeah, we have a protocol. I practice in an inpatient uh, hospital, in an acute care hospital, and we do have a protocol for use in our ICUs. I've even used oral ketamine a handful of times um, on our floors, and I've had pretty good benefit. It, um, it does have opioid-sparing effects. The adverse effects can be, as you see, ranging from blood pressure changes to, you know, tonic-clonic movements. At the doses that we're talking about, they generally don't have these adverse effects, but it doesn't mean it can't happen. So we have to monitor for them. The biggest thing is the psychomimetic effects or the emergence reactions that people worry about. And if someone has this reaction, they're probably not going to want ketamine again. So we have to be careful. Some protocols call for um, a scheduled benzo like lorazepam or scheduled haloperidol before starting this agent. There is a session on this later, I think right after this, um, that someone is another... Um, faculty member is giving, and that will speak probably a lot more to this. I don't typically give one prophylactically unless I'm really worried about this, um, because that, to me, kind of clouds the sedation picture, um, especially if someone's on opioids and I'm trying to figure that out. But this is something that many people do do and can be done. And then um, if a significant reaction does occur, you generally stop the infusion if you're giving an infusion, um, and your side effects should subside within a half an hour. And then um, methadone is another agent that has NMDA receptor antagonism properties. This can be used for all different kinds of pain syndromes. Um, it has different mechanisms of analgesia. Primarily, it's a mu receptor agonist and an NMDA receptor antagonist. The norepinephrine serotonin reuptake inhibition, while it's there, generally is more, for me, I worry about um, interactions with drugs than I think about providing a lot of analgesia, although it's, it's possibly contributing to the analgesic benefits. Um, I just want to make sure I'm aware that this has serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibition properties, and if someone is on other drugs that have those properties as well, to be extra careful about development of serotonin syndrome. So we know that methadone has a variable half-life. Its half-life can be as short as 24 hours and as long as 56 hours. So I've seen up to 156 hours reported. Um, so that's why I say specialists should be using this drug, um, or people who have significant training and expertise. 
There's a lot of drug-drug interactions. The P453A4 is the biggest um, offender, and so we think of things like fluconazole, um, clarithromycin, drugs like that as our big offenders there. Methadone can also prolong the QTC interval. Generally, this is with higher dosing. The studies usually show above 200 milligrams a day, and it's most often in patients on maintenance therapy. Um, but um, at the doses we use at, for pain don't typically do that, but we be careful and cautious and we monitor. Um, and there are guidelines out there for QTC monitoring. And then um, the dose increases should only be done every five to seven days. I work, again, in an acute care hospital. I do increase sooner, but we have really tight monitoring, so it's different. If you're dealing with outpatients and home patients, it shouldn't be sooner than seven days. Okay, so that's methadone um, and ketamine, and so now we'll move on to acetaminophen. Acetaminophen we're all very familiar with. If I asked you to raise your hands, I'm pretty sure everybody would say, I've taken or I've given acetaminophen um, to somebody along the way here. So um, the dosing is there for you. Recommended in pain, especially to use a scheduled dose. Why? Because if you're asked to give somebody something for pain, are you going to give them oxycodone? If you're in a hospital and you're a nurse at the bedside, are you going to give them oxycodone or are you going to give them acetaminophen? You're probably going to reach for the oxycodone because it's probably going to work better and the patient's going to tell you it works better and all these other things. And so the patient's not going to want the acetaminophen probably up front, so scheduled is usually the way to go. Um, and you want to limit it to three to four grams a day in healthy patients. I say three to four because that's the conflicting information that's out there. I generally, in the very sick population I take care of, lean with three. When you're dealing with more healthy adults, four is okay. Um, two grams a day is a recommendation in hepatic and renal dysfunction. Be very careful about duplication of therapy. Studies show that acetaminophen toxicity generally comes because patients don't realize they're taking four different forms of acetaminophen. So education, if you're recommending scheduled acetaminophen, is really crucial. Um, because if they're taking Tylenol with, you know, to help them sleep, Tylenol PM, and then they're taking Tylenol for pain, and then they're taking their Tylenol cough syrup, and they don't realize that the different names are, are the same thing. So just making sure we're educating patients about that. Um, and then it shouldn't affect bleeding. NSAIDs, or non-steroidals, um, listed a few out there for you. Typically, we think of naproxen, ibuprofen, um, ketorolac. Those are the ones I think of mostly, but in outpatient world, you probably are using some of these others. Um, there's COX-2 selective agents like celecoxib. Um, that has um, been used a lot more frequently now as well. I want to be extra careful because remembering that while we're trying to be opioid sparing and limiting our opioids and being really diligent about that, non-steroidals are pretty toxic um, and they can be really dangerous. Um, so we want to be very cautious in people who have renal disease or are at risk for that, people who have cardiovascular disease or are at risk for that, and people who have um, history of GI bleed and those who have heart failure. Uh, NSAIDs can worsen or precipitate all of these conditions. So we want to be super duper careful and uh, avoid these agents in folks who are worried about these things in or monitor very closely. Um, Celecoxib can be very useful in those who have a history of GI intolerance or who are at a higher risk for GI bleed and we're more worried about that. So that can be a useful agent in those folks. Um, tricyclic antidepressants is another class of drugs that we lean on a lot. We have um, probably not as much nowadays as maybe a few years ago. Um, we have some other agents that may be better tolerated now. But when thinking about the tricyclics, um, 
I usually like to think about them in the two different classes. You have the tertiary amines and you have the secondary amines. And so probably you might be familiar with the tertiary amines a little bit more. Um, and that's because there's a, a little more data around amitriptyline in the use of pain management. And amitriptyline is a tertiary amine, and that means that it's more likely to cross the blood-brain barrier. So all that means is more likely to get adverse effects. <laughs> um, and so you're more likely to get those anticholinergic adverse effects, sleepiness, dry mouth, constipation, things that make older people fall, um, which is not a good thing. Um, so sometimes we can reach more for our nortriptylines or our disipramines, which may be a little bit better tolerated, but still has that adverse effect profile. So who do I think of using this, these drugs in? Um, younger patients generally, not older patients. Uh, I just had a patient right before I left who someone started this on and he came in delirious. So wasn't too excited about that. Um, so I just, I'm very cautious and make sure that I'm aware of, you know, the risks. And then um, patients who may have trouble sleeping and usually the dosing is low, 25 milligrams, 50 milligrams, you can get away with. Um, and so maybe better tolerated. Um, and I listed the adverse effects there for you. So then the drugs that have kind of replaced those TCAs are our SNRIs, or serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. These include things like duloxetine, venlafaxine, et cetera. You want to think of these drugs for patients who have neuropathic pain who also may have depression or anxiety. These can be really helpful because, again, I love to use one drug for more than one thing if I can. Um, the things to think about with these drugs are that they can increase blood pressure, so you want to keep a close, tight monitoring on that, and that they can um, cause nausea and vomiting. That's probably the primary adverse effect I've heard people report. And a lot of times I'm starting these drugs in oncology patients who were, like, nauseous anyway. So it can be tricky to figure out which, what caused it, but I've definitely seen that as one of the problems. The other thing I've seen a lot with duloxetine is urinary retention, a lot in my older adults as well. Um, so duloxetine is indicated for musculoskeletal pain and fibromyalgia as well. Be careful because um, you want to avoid it in renal or hepatic insufficiency. And then venlafaxine, the biggest thing about venlafaxine that's different is it is associated with an abrupt withdrawal syndrome. So you want to be careful. If someone is not likely to be very compliant with medications, probably not the ideal drug for that person because if they miss one dose, they may start feeling pretty poorly and go into abrupt withdrawal which just is not pleasant. Um, and then the anticonvulsants. So vitamin G, <laughs> gabapentin, who everybody is on gabapentin, um, or pregabalin, it's cousin. And I think there was a talk earlier about the risk of abuse for these drugs. So we're learning more and more about this as we are trying to lean on them more and more. But um, gabapentin is usually our first line, right? Because that's what the insurances prefer. So that's what we do. Um, and then pregabalin, I actually have had very good success with and generally um, find improved tolerability, faster onset, faster titration, um, challenges cost, right? So a lot of patients can't get this drug because of the insurance limitations, but hopefully, hopefully that can change in the future um, and people can have more access to these things. But the biggest thing with these drugs are renal dose adjustment, so making sure we're aware of that. And then these can cause sedation, right? So we just want to um, make sure that we're telling patients about that, dosing at bedtime, titrating as tolerated. And, um, for instance, the recommending starting dose of gabapentin is what? 300, three times a day, right? And so if we start at that dose in someone who's 70 and very sick in the hospital, we're probably going to cause some problems for them. <laughs> they might be very sleepy. Everyone, I promise, will blame the 
oxycodone, not the gabapentin, but that's fine. Um, and then um, they may be confused and they may not remember things. And so we, we usually start lower at bedtime and titrate up to tolerability. Uh, I saw a hand back there. Yeah. I wish I had a microphone. I believe I heard you start him at 100, first night 200, the second night then 300. So they have like a, a little bit of an escalator. Okay, so, so he's saying he starts at 100 at bedtime, goes to 200, goes to 300, and then if they're any step along the way, they're not doing well, they can go back to the previous dose and, and then go slower. Um, so that's a great plan. And so they have the access to the amount of drug that you want them to be on, but they're kind of taking steps to get there because it is hard to tolerate um, for many, many people. But it can be nice if someone's having trouble sleeping and they have some neuropathic pain too, it can give them kind of both of those benefits. So it definitely has um, its place. Then there's topiramate or Topamax. Um, with this drug, I've heard a lot of, I've heard even my pharmacist colleagues call it Dopamax um, because people feel pretty dopey on it. So people can feel a little bit out of it on this drug. So you want to monitor cognitive effects. Um, might be preferred for those who are overweight or obese and for concomitant substance use disorders as well as for migraine treatment. Some of these other drugs, um, like oxcarbazepine, carbamazepine, these drugs require more significant monitoring and more caution because there's a lot of drug-drug interactions with these drugs. So we lean for the other ones that are a little cleaner first, if we can, usually. Um, so then there's topicals, which may or may not be as useful in central sensitization, but in my experience, somebody rubbing something on you feels pretty good and can help centrally <laughs> um, just in general. So these types of things are all different kinds of ingredients. People compound all different kinds of ingredients. There was a session yesterday on this about more about the, the topicals, um, but there's you know, non-steroidals, there's capsaicin, all kinds of things. There's topical ketamine, topical lidocaine, topical anything. Um, I think the most important things here are to remember that these do generally lack, act locally, so they have to more be of a local type of pain, um, and that uh, you want to really not use them over open or irritated or broken skin um, in general. So um, just real quickly here, uh, for I, I'm going to introduce a patient case that Maria is going to work through as we go along. We have a patient who's a 59-year-old um, uh, Caucasian male with a history of chronic lumbar pain, had a motor vehicle accident, has been given opioids for nine years. Um, the pain is thought primarily to be neuropathic in origin. The patient and the provider are both concerned because he's not really feeling better and his pain is actually worse uh, despite going up on the opioids. The patient's provider wants to taper his opioid favor, in favor of alternatives for pain and wants your assistance. So now you just attended pain week and you're like, I'm a genius. I know all of this and I'm going to help you. Um, so <laughs> here's your patient. Um, active problems are kind of standard depression, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, chronic low back pain. Um, everything from a monitoring perspective has been very appropriate. And his current medications include a morphine extended release three times a day, Sertraline, lisinopril, atorvastatin, and aspirin. So my question for you is, what additional pharmacotherapy would you recommend for RA? So stop sertraline, start duloxetine at 30 a day for a week, and then increase to 60. Considering B, considering cross-tapering of morphine to methadone and following a baseline EKG. Or C, starting meloxicam 30 daily with food. D is both A and B.
Okay. Who says A, stopping the sertraline and starting duloxetine? Okay. A few hands. Not bad. Considering cross-tapering morphine to methadone. Nobody? I see some heads, but not hands. A couple. A couple. Okay. A few people. Meloxicam. Who wants to do A and B? And everybody else is not going to help this person. <laughs> Rats. And everyone else is like, ask her. She just gave the talk. Um, so I personally, I think you could, I probably would start with the sertraline duloxetine thing. Seems like the uh, lowest hanging fruit to me. Um, and then the cross taper from morphine to methadone is not a bad idea, but I would like to get them off opioids if I can. So let me see what I can use to get them off opioids. And if I can't, maybe, maybe methadone is a better opioid from an efficacy perspective for this guy. So that's something I'm thinking about but not necessarily doing. Meloxicam, I don't think so. It sounded like this was more neuropathic, and I think most people in the room agreed with that. So the best answer, I think, is A. If you said A and B, I, we could have a very educated discussion, I'm sure. Um, so with that, I am going to pass this off to Maria. And she's going to take it from there. Thank you. I'm going to shut mine off. Thank you, Tanya. Can you guys hear me okay? Okay, so in this patient, he's been on opioids for nine years. So, and it's really not helping his function. So we want to try to do a taper. So how would we do this and why do we do it? Who should we consider tapers on? So in someone who isn't functioning as well, that may be a reason why you want to get off opioids. And that's what a lot of this crisis is about. We ramped up everybody's opioids and now we need to get them down and taper them down to probably a lower dose if they're not increasing their function. This has to be individualized. Because some people are managing their opioids, they're very appropriate for opioids, and possibly could continue. Our patient here is not getting good effect, and he's getting actually more pain. So maybe in our patient here, we might want to taper. Intolerable side effects could be another reason. And the patient preference. A lot of people maybe now don't want to be on opioids because of all that they're hearing. And we also have patients that may be at risk if they're on opioids. They're not adhering to the treatment plan. Maybe they have substance use disorder and we want to get them off because of that. They're showing abnormal behaviors. They're, you know, they're trying to get extra opioids. They're refilling early. Um, they're using other medications along with their opioids. So a lot of overdoses that you hear about aren't often just prescription opioids. It's benzos, maybe some street drugs on top of that. Anybody on high dose, we're now recommending to go down, especially if they're not functioning. That's controversial in some people that are on high doses and are functioning because all of us are different. We may have different metabolisms and maybe that's why we need a high dose. And there's a lot of psychological comorbidities. When we're talking about sensitization, that's a main part of it. People that can't cope, people that catastrophize. That might be patients that you may not want on opioids. So how fast do we do this? Do we do it quickly? Do we do it slowly? Our patient has been on opioids nine years. What do you think? Do you think you would go down every two days on that patient? Yeah, that's not going to work out so well, is it, right? So I think that, you know, on someone who's been on these opioids for a longer period of time, you may need to slow down their taper. How slow you go? That's interesting. At the family medicine office I work at, they're going down a milligram a month of methadone, and the guy's on about 100 milligrams. It's going to take a while get him off his methadone. But that's the way he wants to do it, and he's willing to go down, so they're working with him on that and trying to get him down. 
So if you're on it for a shorter period of time, though, those are those patients that might be able to go every two days, go down every uh, two to three days and, and do a quicker taper. Um, 25 cent initial dose reduction, and that can be done every few days. On a slower taper, like we said, a lower risk patient, somebody who's been on this for years, and we've seen that because 10 years ago, this was standard of care to ramp everybody's opioids up. So that's what we did to a lot of patients, and now we're trying to get them off appropriately. We're taking away the supply, but we really need to deal with the demand, which is where Tanya's piece came in, using some of those adjunctive medications would be helpful as you're doing your taper. So this you would consider a 10 to 25% reduction every four weeks and work with your patient. That's going to be individualized. You go down 25% and they start having withdrawal symptoms, you may need to slow that taper down. In addition, one other thing I'd like to say is risk. If you have an increased risk or if you're showing those aberrant behaviors, that's not someone that you're going to want to go down slowly, right? So we actually had that question in one of the sessions. Would you continue to go down slowly in someone with aberrant behaviors? No, you just need to be able to get them to off that quickly and treat the withdrawal symptoms. So here we have a taper example. Um, a slower taper could be uh, 2 to 10% every one to two months. That's the slowest that you see out there. A slower may be 5 to 20% every month. A fast taper could be over weeks, where we go 10 to 20% a week versus days. And those would be our higher risk patients or someone who has not been on therapy for a very long time. So back to our case, we have our 59-year-old male. You know about the case. Tanya told us about it. He has neuropathic pain. Who thinks opioids work well for neuropathic pain? Who thinks they work at all? Yeah, I think they work somewhat. I don't think they're the best choice, right? Um, there's some combination opioids, methadone being one of them, tapentadol being another, that may be a better efficacious for if we do have neuropathic pain or a mixed pain syndrome. So now he would like to taper off his opioid therapy and wants us to help him do that. Again, his active problems, his current medications, 90 milligrams of morphine a day, not exactly a really high dose, but if he was on 600 milligrams of morphine a day, we may be able to rapidly taper initially. But now when you get down to these doses here, about 90, 120 milligrams of morphine a day, you're going to have to slow that taper down, especially since this guy's been on it for nine years. So in sake of time, we will uh, have you guys discuss what's going on. How, anybody have right now an answer on how slow you would taper this guy? Yes. He knows our talk. <laughs> not very easily with MS Cotton, right? Because it's not available that way. So we're going to have to go down 15s. So how qu quickly do you think? Over the next two weeks, do it at high risk? Does this guy have a high risk? No. Quickly over the next month, do his concern of adverse events? Is he having any adverse events from this? No. Next several months, do the duration? Yeah, that's where I think that we're going to have to do his taper. That's how we may have to do it. Over the next year, do his high opioid dose? I just said he wasn't on that high of a dose, right? 90 milligrams a day. So I think that C is the correct answer here. And as our young man over here said, we were going to be going down about 15 milligrams a shot every month. Month one, we drop 15 in the middle of the day and so on and so forth. Every month, we drop him down about 15 milligrams and make sure that he's tolerating this. And maybe start some adjunctive therapy while this is going on. 
we will definitely have an efficacious adjunctive therapy in six months. It's usually about six weeks. And really important is, again, talk to your patients, realistic expectations. Tell them what to expect. Because how many people do you start on gabapentin? We see them come into the hospital. They're on 300 milligrams a day. Well, it's not going to work. It doesn't work because we're not on an efficacious dose and we don't titrate it up. So if it's fast taper, what would we do based on patient risk? And what pharmacotherapy could we recommend for RA? So when you do a fast taper on someone who may be an increased risk, we probably will see some type of withdrawal syndrome. They're not life-threatening, as we all know, but they are uncomfortable. People hate withdrawal. It, they make, that's why heroin addicts continue to use heroin. They don't want to feel sick, more so than getting high after a while. They just can't stand the withdrawal symptoms. So we can use some short-term medications to limit the withdrawal symptoms, and, but we are not recommending using benzodiazepines. So here's a table where, you know, based on your symptom, you can have some possible treatments. So constipation, you could use a laxative. We don't usually see that withdrawal, though. We're usually seeing the diarrhea. So loperamide can be used for aches and pains, the myalgia. We can try some Tylenol or NSAIDs. Um, hydroxazine can be used for some anxiety, an old drug that we used for anxiety in the past when people that are as old as me practiced. Um, quetiapine has also been used. Tanya mentioned trazodone we can use for insomnia and clonidine for those tachycardic symptoms. So here, our takeaways from this talk is the tapers must be individualized. Everyone's going to be different, and everyone's going to be able to come down off these medications differently. Slower taper for those who have a longer duration of action. Rapid taper for higher-risk patients. And optimizing all of those non-opioid therapies, assist in the tapering efforts, and I would actually recommend probably some other multimodal therapy that may not be pharmacological in, in origin. And we're using a lot more ketamine for these opioid sparing effects. So I'm going to, as a pharmacist, going to talk to you a little bit about educating our patients. As I said, realistic expectations are key. People fear opioids. People, chronic pain patients, are often more afraid of the pain coming back than anything else. They focus on their pain. They centralize their pain. They're afraid of their pain. And they catastrophize a lot over it. So there's an actual a textbook that physical therapy pe uh, people use that's called therapeutic neuroscience education, where they use education as a patient therapy. And it can be very effective. So they've actually done studies in fibromyalgia, low back pain, where we're educating our patients about their pain and what that cause of that pain is. And once they're educated and accept it, their pain can improve. The long-term compliance requires changes in perceptions. We have to change our brain around in order to be able to cope with that pain. We have to develop coping skills. We have to reverse that centralization. And education is a piece of how to do that. And it can alter our pain behaviors, can take away that catastrophizing, can take away the maladaptive um, illness perceptions. And as I said, this is why sometimes our people have pain, especially with sensitized pain. We can't find anything wrong with them. We're looking for a biomedical reason for them to have pain, and we're not finding anything on imaging, on any type of, type of exams. And so the patient is now even more fearful. What's the matter with me? Why am I having this pain? Because they're really having pain, and it's suffering for them. I have a fibromyalgia brother who has bipolar disease, and he catastrophized 
forever. And I'm going to talk to you how he improved his, his ability to handle his pain. So by using this education, we can reconceptualize it. We can tell that patient exactly what their pain is from and try to get that buy-in from that patient. The neuroscience education recommends um, in patients where their function isn't improving, as we're talking about with any reason, one of the reasons why we taper, and for these maladaptive patterns. So with this education, if you have a patient that may have centralized pain, this may be an avenue that you can do. And the illness perceptions and coping skills are what we really need. Sorry, this is a little busy, so I'm going to try to walk you through this. But we have our neuroscience education. We have to determine, is education needed in our patients? If it is, we send them home with educational sessions. So there's actually guidelines on this where you can send the patient home with some information to read and understand basics on what is happening with their body. What is happening with this central sensitization? Why is this pain happening despite their, we can't find anything wrong with them? They come back, session two, you make them explain to you exactly what they've learned in the first session. Otherwise, you send them back to do a little bit more understanding of this. And once they understand the session, um, the educational session one, you give them some educational, a second educational session where you're going to affirm understanding of the pain sensitization. You're going to make sure the patient's understanding what's going on in their body. And we're going to apply it then during our life situations to try to make it practical. I just went through this. I'm not going to go through it again. You'll have it in your handout. And then you need to follow up on these patients. These patients will need to be monitored because these maladaptive patterns can come back pretty quickly. Right? because of those anxiety, depression issues, especially if they're not treated. So we want to determine the willingness to understand this. This patient, the patients need your buy-in. You need to have coping strategies, self-management, and increase activity as much as you can. That sounds so counterintuitive. Fibromyalgia patients, exercise is important, but sometimes they can't get out to exercise because they're in so much pain and suffering at that moment. So that's a really hard sell. But as you get their pain under control, you can try to get them started out slowly, especially water therapy. I think that works really well, L much less on your joints and things like that. So I think water therapy could be really well. And we have to try to get those patients to stop ruminating and centralizing on their pain. Lifelong education on this, following up your patient, encouragement, especially when things are stressful in their lives, trying to get that stress under control, maybe recommending some meditation, things like that. Re-educating when you see them every time, see how they're doing, try to continue to have those realistic expectations for their patients. So whoever's been at Pain Week before, this is another program, Take Courage Coaching, that Becky Curtis performs. And I don't think she's here this year. But it's a fascinating program, and I have some personal experience with this because she offered this to a few of my patients. So what it is is a coaching, a telephonic coaching program for pain. So the patients never have to leave their house. It's one-on-one -on -one for once a week and with a group once a week. I got my brother into this and a sickle cell patient that I had that whenever his pain would, whenever his crisis would go down, his pain would get worse because he'd be so afraid of the pain coming back. And I couldn't get him controlled on 15 grams of morphine a day equivalents. I would rotate opioids every week, got him in this program. So what that does, and it's a year-long program, 
they tried to get this woman to shorten the program for insurance reasons. It's not covered at this point, but she will not shorten it. She feels that you have to have a sufficient amount of time to change those pain thoughts in your brain. Okay, so it's a telephonic program. It's a year long and it has two sessions a week. Here's her data. As you can see, healthcare visits, we're seeing some good effect from um, her intake that we're seeing a lot of good statistically significant values on her pain program. She shows about a 50% efficacy rate. She got me four patients in, two didn't make it. So in my world, she had a 50% efficacy rate. What happened with my patients is my brother, six months in, tapered him down. I had him on every adjunct in the book and I had him on methadone and um, he was on just all morphine in the beginning tapered down his methadone to about 10 milligrams a day. This guy over here hates methadone, I can tell. <laughs> but I tapered him down on his methadone. Six months into this program, he said his pain was a two. I have not heard that from him in 30 years. He now can d distinguish his psych issues from his pain. And he's able to put into development coping skills when he feels that pain coming on. And he is now mentoring in this program. My sickle cell patient, Last admission to my institution, he would be there four times a year, six weeks at a shot. Last admission was October 28th, 2014. He had one admission after that in a week at another institution. So her program's amazing. I wish insurance would cover it. It's about 8,000 a year. But I really feel that what she's doing can really help changing that brain and, and making our uh, expectations realistic with patients. So, Complex pain, complex pain patients, right? Chronic pain is complex. They're not easy. Physicians in five-minute office, 15-minute office visits cannot generally get the information or what they need for these patients. We need to um, use different types of medications for this type of pain because opioids don't work that well. And especially when we have sensitization in place because this correlates to pain without any cause and we need to change our pain system around in order for it to work better again. And some education for these patients can help alter their maladaptive thinkings, their cat catastrophic behaviors, and, some, and develop some coping skills. References for you? And on that note, we'll take any questions you may have. Thank you for your attention. Yes? It is very difficult. So one of the things that I do is, you know, you're tapering up. And we had a patient that went into um, a hypersensitive state because they just continued to taper up with no effectiveness of that medication. So if something is not working after one or two tapers, I'll try something else. I'll try to get those um, different um, alternative agents in place. And if you continue to use the medications and they're not working and patients function, doesn't get better, that's when I would think that there's some sensitization present. And I think in anybody with chronic pain, whether there's sensitization only or even if they have chronic rheumatoid arthritis, chronic osteoarthritis, that any of these other coping skill development is needed because they just as easily can make their pain worse by sensitizing it, by 
by just focusing on it. So it's very difficult to determine, like, like um, uh, yeah. Tanya said, it's, you know, you can't even tell the difference sometimes between that and maladaptive or substance use disorder. I think it's important to make sure also that you're titrating up by an effective amount. I think there is, you know, hesitancy to go up sometimes, and so we go up by 10% or 5%, but to really feel an impact and a change, you've got to go up by 25%. So if you do a few significant adjustments and you're like, this, I should be seeing some improvement and there's none, you're probably not with the right drug um, more than likely. The other thing is I do a lot of palliative care and I actually think this applies in that world too because these people are living for months and years with severe chronic metastatic cancer-induced pain and their coping skills aren't great either. And they've learned to catastrophize about it too because I would also. Um, so I think in general this applies to people who are living in these states. You know, you you, coping becomes hard to do over time. So I think this is just a good adjunct for like the world. <laughs> I agree. Any other questions? We're here for the next talk too. So if you wanted to come up and ask, we'll be here and then we're happy to entertain. Thank you all. Thank you.